Hey everybody, welcome to another episode. I am Michael Petro, and joining me on the show this week is Richard Walter. Who is Richard Walter? His name is Richard Walter. No, sorry, Fight Club got in there. Uh, Richard. Richard is uh, the, uh, well, Richard chaired the graduate program in screenwriting at, UC at UCLA. Um, he has been teaching for over 40 years, was teaching for over 40 years, he's retired now, um, and has written such books on screenwriting called The Essentials of Screenwriting and The Whole Picture. Um, some of Richard's former students have gone on to write for um, this dude named Steven Spielberg. Uh, some others have gone on to win Academy Awards for Best Screenplay. Um, this, some of the students that have even taken his classes have gone on to become screenwriters of small independent films like Jurassic Park, The Terminal, the shows like The Office, The Little Ditty, The Simpsons, uh, some Thor, The Dark World, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and uh, Carlito's Way. Um, in short, uh, we get to talk about storytelling and screenwriting today, and I got to listen to a ton of knowledge i hope you guys absorb you're, you're gonna absorb something um because richard is full of tips and ideas and, and different ways of looking at film i know i walked away from this and every movie i've watched since i've watched it through a different lens thanks to him so uh, i don't do much talking I, I i i fell for his charm and just wanted to listen to him so there's not much of me it's just a, a lot of him which is the perfect interview less of me always less of me so uh that's who's on the show all of his information will be provided at the bottom of uh at the bottom of whatever you're reading whatever podcast app you're in uh, it'll be on our website as well too if you want to find out what uh, what he's teaching he's got online classes if you want to contact him about something on his website he's got tons of information there about screenwriting and storytelling so on with the show that is who is here uh your first time listener thanks for pressing play that was super cool of you you're taking a chance on us we appreciate it so if you want to know more about us we're kind of a story too uh so if you want to head to our website you can see us you can read about some of the things we've thought uh you will learn more about martin mark jimmy rob myself uh friends of the show uh if you want to go to the website you can see the bios of some of the people who've done the show in the past uh, all of all that stuff is there at thebuilderbaiters.ca. You can also support the show there too. You can donate or you can purchase goods. The goods uh, have our logo all over it. Uh, it. A lot of fun stuff there: skateboards, uh, cell phone covers, tote bags, a random plethora of tchotchkes kicking around there. Uh, so that's at the prop shop on our website. And then if you want to donate, which is pocket change, we're talking about here. Um, this is a podcast. We're not we're not changing the world. So if you got one or two bucks kicking around, you want to throw it our way, it goes back into production costs and then by proxy we get to blame you for helping us make it better for you and everybody wins so all of that at the real debaters.ca uh, the real debaters at gmail.com is the email address and at real debaters is how you follow us online at this point i just want to shout out to our top five places in canada our top five places in america i will come up with a better name for this segment i promise you uh, but at this point uh, i just like to say that we love everybody who listens to the show Local and otherwise, wherever you're coming from. But the two places that get the most action are Friends in America and all of Canada. So to our top five places who've been doing heavy lifting and spreading the word in America, Oakland, San Jose, Ashburn, Cedar Grove, and Forney, thank you very much. To the top five places in Canada, let me click on the tab, which I should have already been ready for, Winnipeg, Kelowna, Vancouver, Nanaimo, and Toronto. Thank you again to everybody who listens seriously, sincerely. It's fun. This is cool to do. We enjoy doing it, as stupid as it is. 
Um, so, but these are the places that are just like, hey, go check these guys out. There are little spikes everywhere. So uh, thank you very much. Much appreciated. Uh, besides that, that, that's it. That's all. I, I give you Richard Walter. I will cue the reel, and you enjoy the show. Let's tidy up this tangle of film by putting it on a reel. Here is a motion picture film, a thousand feet, 16,000 separate photographs. Welcome, doing well and thank you for inviting me i'm delighted to be here as you stood up to uh take your sweater off i looked behind you and saw a bunch of green leaves i'm incredibly jealous because you're in california if i'm not mistaken right let's see yeah you know it's uh i've i came to california i thought for three weeks uh and that was in 1966 august <laughs> um, and i decided recently i'm going to give it another 54 years if it still hasn't worked out for me back to the apple i'm a new york boy um, I could tell there is a lesson in it. There's a lesson in it. Uh, uh, you know, what happened to me was I, I, at the last minute, I suddenly fell into film school at, um, at USC. <clears throat> you know, I've been 40 years plus at UCLA and I retired from the faculty, but I'm a Trojan too. I was at USC film school. Okay. And it was the right place, at the right time. My, uh, my classmates were the, uh, we were really the first class to move from the um, academic community, film community into the professional film community, come on actually and, and, and come to own Hollywood, uh, except for one of my classmates, George Lucas, who owns Marin County up in, uh, up in Northern California. <laughs> but it was really a magical place. Uh, uh, you know, George was there. They would, they, uh, I, I always, ref people often refer to that era at USC as the Lucas era, but George, I'm told, actually refers to it as the Walter era. Just <laughs> joking, just joking. Um, but it was quite amazing. Uh, you know, three years later, August of 69, <clears throat> by that time I was married and my bride and I, we went up, uh, we, we took a trip just on holiday up to Northern California. We wanted to visit the Redwood uh, National Park. Yeah, yeah. And, um, we stopped the first night in San Francisco where I have friends and we stayed overnight. And I called Walter Murch, uh, who was a classmate of mine and George's uh, at USC at that time, and also a hugely famous guy. He actually won two Oscars at the same, um, same Oscar ceremony, one for sound editing, one for sound design, something like that. Uh, Walter, a hugely, hugely famous guy all around the world, a famous um, book on editing in the blink of an eye. It's called, and he's also a um, internationally renowned amateur um, astrophysicist. Amateur is not a pejorative in that context. It means he's not formally schooled, yeah. but he's very, very um, uh, educated in um, astrophysicists and has very uh, sophisticated <laughs> theories about um, what, where uh, planets orbit, uh, whatever it is that they're orbiting. Um, hugely sophisticated stuff that is uh, sometimes denounced by um, uh, very, very famous uh, uh, astrophysicists and, and theoretical mathematicians. Uh, to be denounced by them is a great honor. You know, it's like I, I always <laughs> often tell people, somebody was telling me the other day that they, he feels he's being betrayed. He has a deal at 
Warner Brothers and he doesn't like the way the agent is handling this, he's complaining about this. And, and I was saying, well, you know, it's a privilege even merely to be mistreated in Hollywood. <laughs> that, uh, means they are, that means they're aware uh, of it. The worst thing that I'm going to do to you is just ignore you, put you on ignore, you know. <laughs> the, somebody telling you, no, we don't like this. This is not for us. Talking about your script, that, that's painful, of course, but it's not as painful as what you usually hear, which is the following. Um, the you know, crickets, nothing, just <laughs> put them on ignore, you know. In any event, you told me that you came to this, you had applied for some program yes. uh, that you didn't get into, and it led you in, into something really, really quite interesting and productive. Yeah. I told you that I came out to California for, for just a, a few weeks, just to, I'd never been uh, west of Cleveland. I drove out in three days in a VW Beetle. Uh, with a pal of mine, <clears throat> and um, was not really planning on on any of this. And there is a uh, a lesson in it. Um, well, I'll, I'll give you another example of it. Um, the uh, there was a, a student at UCLA before my time, Colin Higgins, now deceased. I think he was he was Australian, and he made a number of really, really, really brilliant films. Uh, his first. He actually wrote at UCLA, uh, Harold and Maud. Oh, okay. But he also made big, splashy Hollywood Hollywood uh, blockbusters like uh, Foul Play. Um, oh, um, uh, some of the titles are escaping me, but... Um, okay, I'll uh, Google it here. Oh, Sil Sil Silver Streak. A very, um, very fine, fine director. Anyway, Colin, when he was still a student at, at UCLA, he applied for the, uh, he entered the Goldwyn competition, hoping to, which was the, the original dramatic narrative um, competition. He was hoping that, he, that if he could win first prize, which was somehow or other $4,500, I don't know how they came up with that, but this is years and years ago. And for $4,500, he knew he could live comfortably in LA for a year and just concentrate on his writing without any distractions. And uh, that was his dream. That was his plan. That's what he what he focused on doing. And he almost got it. Uh, he, but he, he did not, in fact, win first prize. He only won second prize. And that was just $2,500. And it was not enough for him to uh, live on without support from a day job. So he got a day job. And um, he got one of those day jobs that's just perfect for uh, uh, actors and writers and trying to make it in Hollywood, which is a, he, he was not a waiter or a cab driver, uh, but working for a swimming, swimming pool cleaning company. Oh, and yeah. the first pool he goes to is in the, is in the flats of Beverly Hills. Um, very fancy real estate where a lot of movie people live and he's out vacuuming. He's out in back of the, the uh, house at the pool, vacuuming the bottom of the pool and seated, uh, at the far end of the pool under a beach umbrella in the shade reading a screenplay is is a man who clearly is the owner of this house and um they get to chatting and he introduces himself and indeed this guy is a producer and so on and colin uh, tells him that he's won second prize in the goldwyn competition and the guy agrees to read the script and he ends up producing harold and maud and launching um colin's career uh, I remember Colin saying to me years ago, uh, if my dream had come true, if I'd achieved my goal, if I'd won first prize, 
uh, in the golden competition, I'd be cleaning swimming pools now, you know. Um, Isn't that how it is? It, it really, you know, they, there's two things. I have said this before. I'm going to say it again. I am a trained actor. I've belonged to Screen Actors Guild now long enough that they don't bill me that <laughs> I don't have to pay dues anymore. <laughs> I don't pursue, I don't really pursue it. I've, I've came to believe years and years ago that the only reason there are actors is so that there should be one group that gets treated even more shabbily than writers. <laughs> um, you know, that, that suffers even greater pain. You know, somebody telling you that they don't like your script, that hurts, but you walk into a room for audition and they just take one look at you, you know. Oh yeah, the turnaround. <laughs> You know, so that, I mean, that's your flesh and your blood. I mean, that that really, really, uh, you know, that's not of you like a screenplay, but it, it's you. That's you. That's you. So it is. Um, before you have a chance to show them. But in any event, I am, I am a pretty good actor and I can say things very, I'm also a very experienced public speaker. I've lectured, God knows, at UCLA thousands of times over 40 years. But on top of that, I have traveled all around the world. Yeah. Um, in, in brick and mortar, I've, I've had multiple visits to Canada, by the way, love Canada. And when I was a student in media years ago, going for my um, master's at Syracuse University, I used to travel up to Toronto to visit with uh, Marshall McLuhan. Oh. Uh, you know, now people sometimes say of McLuhan that he was kind of a, a pop icon of the 60s. I think he was one of the, the great, great seers of the century. And that his uh, formula, his equation, if we can call it that, uh, the medium is the message is the equivalent of Einstein's E equals, um, uh, you know, what is it? <laughs> CM, CM square. Um, it's it's a, uh, a thunderingly huge insight. And we're seeing the, the proof of it today with the global village has now happened. This was what, gold, what the, uh, the Canadian um, McLuhan predicted. And you can see the way... Uh, media change they're not just different ways of of talking to each other of commute of, of, of sending information and transferring data but they are the data they really do do a, a, affect us in any event i i am as a good actor and i can say things um very convincingly even though i don't believe them um and so now i'm going to say two things that i don't believe that are very one of which is very closely connected to your story and my own story. And I think most everybody's story, if they're smart. Um, again, these are two principles that I do not believe. Uh, they are preached in almost any kind of um, arena, whether it's uh, how to improve your love life, how to um, uh, get into business, um, no matter, no matter, you know, how to write for the screen, no matter what it is, people will tell you two things, two principles that are key. And remember, I don't believe either of them, but even though I've told you this repeatedly and I've just told you now moments before I say it, as I say it, it's going to make, make such sense. And I'm going to say it so reasonably, you're going to believe it, even, even though I'm telling you I don't believe this. And here it is, first of all. You know, if, you want to if you want to succeed, I'm sorry. I just... Your cord is rubbing against your oh, microphone, and it's. Thank you. Do do not hesitate to uh, let me know that. Yeah, like up up by your mouthpiece there. It's it's just cutting you off. You got you're you're spitting diamonds here. I want to get it all. Yeah, just hold that yeah. cord. Sometimes I inadvertently, uh, with my little rosary, 
I accidentally will sometimes uh, shut the, shut myself off. You, <laughs> I think people in the world would wish they had a switch to, to shut me off. I mean, you know, hello, how are you? It takes about a half hour for me. In any event, um, if you want to succeed, here's if you want to succeed in a competitive arena and anything that's really competitive, and there's nothing more competitive than than the screenwriting racket. I mean, you know, I'm I'm pointing here uh, about ten minutes from here is Dodger Stadium. Uh, I think it's about as as easy to get into Major League Baseball, you know, as as it is to to sell material to the screen. It's very competitive. And if you want to succeed at something that's really competitive, you have to understand two principles. One is you can't wallow in guilt. You got to get guilt out of your life. You can't worry about this or that or the other thing. You just got to do what you got to do. And the other thing, even more importantly. Uh, is you got to have clear goals. Uh, you have to really focus laser-like and not be given over to distractions. Now, you, people sitting around listening to me, if we were in a brick-and-mortar setting, I, I, I see heads nodding. Yeah, Richie, that's a good point. So, and even though I've just told you this is nonsense, the truth is guilt is your friend. Guilt is one of the greatest uh, blessings <laughs> That we have. I read uh, the Timeses, I call them every morning, the Los Angeles Times, the New York Times, and I haven't seen one he uh, front page of either of them, not this morning or ever, where it didn't occur to me, just looking at the headlines, that this is the world that needs needs more guilt. Yeah, no, we um, don't. But as, as far as writing is concerned, guilt, I'm sorry. Guilt is what keeps keeps your butt in a chair and your uh, your hands on the uh, on the keys. Um, there's a guy named uh, I think it's Lawrence Pressfield. He's written a brilliant little volume, a ragged little little pamphlet practically, but it's just ingenious called the uh, the Art of War. I'm sorry, the War of Art. It's a play on the book The Art of War by Sun Tzu. Uh, a Chinese um, philosopher who, and, and I guess a general, maybe military general, hundreds of years ago wrote this, and it became very popular in um, uh, corporate America and maybe international America for ways to uh, to do business. There's all kinds of principles in there. Yeah, it's for, very, it's very cutthroat. There's uh, yeah, uh, the you know, he, like he, attack at dawn and take out your enemy's water supply and all those things are in there. Yeah. Well, I, I, my favorite is he says, keep your friends close, <laughs> keep your enemies closer. <laughs> but in any event, uh, so Pressfield is, is playing on that. He, not the art of war, but the war of art. Um, and he talks about resistance. Uh, uh, you know, people will sometimes ask, you know, do you, is there such a thing as, as writer's block? And uh, writer's block is all there is. There's only only writer writer's block you know somebody wants to say oh, there's no, no writer just flies to the the only amateurs fly to the keyboard and want to get it all 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 down um real writers uh, uh do not like to write we we love having written but uh sitting down actually writing pressfield says this is maybe my favorite saying from him he says it's really easy to write it's just hard to sit down to write um Hi. The fact is that um, uh, we we are are uh, constantly butting butting up against resistance, uh, other things that we want to do. I did meet one very famous, and I won't name name him, a hugely successful um, writer. Oh, I'm going to tell you who it is because he's deceased and I can't hurt his feelings. It was Neil Simon. Oh, okay, yeah. And uh, 
I picked him up by this house. He was going to come. He just lived across the street from us. At, we were in the North Campus at UCLA, and he's across Sunset Boulevard in Bel Air. Very uh, pricey real estate. And he agreed to come down to talk about comedy uh, with our writers. And I, uh, um, I went to pick him up. And he said, uh, you know, I read your book on screen run. I said, wow, <laughs> no, no kidding. Um, I mean, talk about colds to Newcastle. <laughs> um, he said, no, I thought it was a really good book. And you're a very funny writer. And I said to him, uh, gee, everybody loves a compliment. But for, for somebody like Neil Simon to, to tell you that, that you're a funny writer, that's really, really meaningful. And then I managed somehow to say to him, just imagine, uh, now that you've read the book, just imagine and, all, and, and think about, try to contemplate all of the success that you've known. You know, at one point he had five plays on Broadway at the same time, three of them in theaters that he owned. Uh, I said to him, imagine uh, when you contemplate your success um, over your career, what you might have achieved if you had had this book when you were starting out. Um, Thank God he laughed at that. (laughs) I was was sort of kidding with him. Um, But once again, goals. The the fact of the matter is that, uh, uh, oh, I I was... Ended up coming to California yeah, yeah. without any goal. The goal was to go back east, and, and, and three years later, I am with my wife, and, and uh, we're we're on our way to Northern California. We stop overnight. We call Walter Murch. He lived on. He had been a classmate of ours, of of mine at USC Film School. The last time we had been to the Bay Area, and we went. We we used to go quite a bit. We have a lot of friends there. We have family there. Uh, we had been to a party on his houseboat. He lived on a houseboat just off of uh, the uh, uh, seawall at uh, Sausalito, just, just the other side of the, uh, from, this, from the city of San Francisco in, in um, Marin County, the other side of the Golden Gate Bridge. And there'd been a wonderful party on his houseboat. The last time we'd been, as I said, hey, Walter, when's the party? And he said, no party tonight, but tomorrow, Sunday, we're at 11 o'clock. Uh, there's a group of us just getting together informally for brunch. Why don't you join us? We're, it's going to be at the Trident and Eatery at... Um, uh, in Sausalito on the water. So we did. So there were nine of us, uh, myself and my wife, a, a woman who would become an Oscar-winning editor. She, along with uh, with Richard Chu, would, would win the Oscar for editing Marty Scorsese's uh, Alice Doesn't Live Here. I'd love to start off with her because she was also there with her husband, and her husband was George Lucas. Uh, <laughs> sitting next to George, and by the way, they... You know, we stayed, and when we returned from California, from Northern California, we stayed overnight with them at their place. I still remember it was on uh, on Vernal uh, in Mill Valley. I, I can't remember where I parked my car. I can't remember my children's names. <laughs> I remember the, the Lucases. When George and Marshall were together, they were living in this tract home in uh, uh, Mill Valley, and um, they were. Uh, uh, George was actually had had transformed the attic into a. Uh, cutting room and he was editing um, uh, THX, his first uh, feature length film, the one that he was doing at, at Warner Brothers. Uh, which, unfortunately, a film that ended up looking like what it was, which is a, a beautiful 15 minute student film stretched out to like about an hour and a half. I'm sorry. What, what film What film was that that he was working on? THX. Oh, okay. Sorry. I, that's yeah. the sound. Okay. I, I, he had made a film, a, a legendary film, brilliant film, student, student film. 
at USC called THX11384EB. The EB wasn't really EB. It was two press-on letters and E and a B kind of stuck together to make a new letter. Um, and uh, it was just brilliant. Unfortunately, THX, the feature length version, as I say, looks like a brilliant short film that has been extruded into a very unbrilliant, uh, you know, too long um, uh, feature. But in any event, so who else is out there? There's myself, my wife, then there's Marshall Lucas, George Lucas. Uh, sitting next to George was Caleb Deschanel, very famous uh, cinematographer, uh, probably best known now for, uh, as the father of um, daughters who were very famous actors. Um, next to, to Caleb was, was uh, David Lester, who was a uh, uh, less, less well-known name, but a very, very wonderful man and a terrifically successful and busy producer. He produced, he did the line work on Ron Shelton's films, Bull Durham and, and others. Then there was Walter and Aggie, Walter Birch, I told you about, and Aggie. And finally, the ninth person was John Milius. I, I don't know if everybody knows that name, but he he wrote Apocalypse. Now he invented Arnold Schwarzenegger. You know, he, I always call it Conan the Librarian. I would tell John. But, uh, you know, he's a hugely successful writer and director. And so here, after just three years of accidentally you know stumbling into in you know into, deciding not to go to, back to Syracuse but to go to USC here I am with these people around the table uh just a couple of months later I got a call from Jerry Lewis Jesus uh believe it or not I was Jerry Lewis's teaching assistant he actually taught a course in directing it at USC and I was his, t his TA I remember calling him up and saying hey hey Richie I'm shooting a movie at Warner's and I need a, a dialogue director, somebody to work work the uh, uh, actors through their dialogue. He uses a lot of amateur actors and they need somebody to work, work with them on their lines and so yeah. on. And I was wondering if you could refer me to somebody, you know anybody who would be good at that? And of course I said to him, what about me? He said, well, I, I hoped you would say that. So I, I got to work on a... Um, you know, feature-length movie. <laughs> Warner Brothers came in every day. By the way, I'm not a big sports fan. I went to—I uh, was a varsity athlete when I, myself when I was an undergraduate a hundred years ago. I was a swimmer, um, but I—I I never really cared much about sports. Um, at UCLA, 40 years, I went to one basketball game and I went to one football game. Um, but I do—I do like baseball, and um, uh, I've been a Dodger fan since. My Brooklyn days, I actually grew up in metaphorical Brooklyn, which is Queens. Um, <laughs> and uh, on, the, on the Jerry Lewis liked to slum with uh, athletes, with star athletes. And so he had Willie Davis, who was the center fielder for the Dodgers in his oh, prime. Okay. Willie had hit uh, 36 consecutive games. He'd gotten hit the franchise record by far. Um, he was uh, uh, threatening that year to bat 400. He was in his prime, 29 years old. He was the center fielder for the, for the team. And he was an actor on this picture. And I remember one day, I hope it's okay to talk about this now. Um, I pulled up to the studio at eight in the morning as scheduled. And in the parking lot, there was a guy, a production assistant. I still remember his name, Robin Churchill. I hope he, <laughs> he doesn't mind my invoking it. Uh, and he says, hey, Richie. And he signals me over. 
and he's lining up a joint and he he says it's a Panama red or something like that. There was all kinds of stuff like that in that, that era. He says, you, you want a taste? I said, you know, it's a little early for me, but all right, what the heck? <laughs> uh, and as we're lining up, big adult Eldorado Cadillac pulls up and Willie Davis gets out and he sees us and he says, he had a really deep, deep voice. Uh, beautiful, beautiful, deep voice. He was also a singer. He recorded some, some tunes. He sang very beautifully. He says, hey, how about me? So he says, sure, Willie, you know. So there I am. I'm three years in California, and here I am smoking weed, committing what was then a felony <laughs> with the center fielder for the Dodgers. I thought I had just died and, and, and gone to heaven. Uh, well, you also used to toss a ball around. I would give him uh, tips, you know. Uh, he oh, was very <laughs> good-natured about it. Like, in any event, in any event, the goals. I just want to um, sure. think for one second here. This is you're heading out like this whole thing is you just head out to California. You have no plans of staying, and all of these things happen to you out of no desire to really know what you're doing. Is that? But this yeah. is the happiest accident I have ever heard of. The names, the situation. You're you're smoking a joint with Willie Davis. Like that's crazy. It is great, and I will tell you something. It, it's not. Uh, if all we do is talk about my my wonderful life, and I do, you know, they say you can't have it all, but I have it all. I, you know, I've been married to the first woman that I ever married. We have two point two children, whatever the national average is. In fact. They have a couple of children of their own, and they are the the only thing better than than children is uh, is grandchildren. But there there is a um, uh, we're talking about my life narrative right now. This is the story of my life. Yes, this is uh, what I've discovered over the years is that your dramatic narrative, the screenplay you're writing, uh, if it's going to be good, it's going to operate the same way. And let me get back to goals as an example. Yes, we do. Um, Again, uh, people will tell you, you must have goals. You mustn't be given over to, to distraction. Uh, and everybody nods. That makes makes good sense. The truth of the matter is, uh, it's the opposite of what I believe. I think that um, uh, you, you'll defeat yourself if you have very clear goals and you try, you see in advance where you want to be and you get every, it's the distractions that pay off. We've both seen that. And what you were describing to me before we went on the air, if we, we can yeah, call yeah. this yes. air, uh, and what happened to me was not what I what I was planning. And what I'm saying to writers is give up your plans. Stop planning. It's okay to have an outline. I think it's really important, actually, to have an outline. Um, but that's what it is. It's it's the outline. It's not the script. And when, it, when your script runs off the rails from the outline, the biggest mistake you can make is try to grab it and pull it back to some notion you had about it six weeks ago, two months ago, last year or the year before. You've sort of uh, uh, got to just be spontaneous and 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 uh, uh, and kind of just stay open to the sur surprises is is what I would say. So once again, um, your best bet in in life is first of all to be guilty. <laughs> um, well, that means to have moral principles not only about the way you work with others but the way you treat yourself. Are you going to be serious about your art? Are you going to here? Here's the real challenge in in uh, screenwriting and every other creative enterprise giving it the time yeah. uh, you know writers don't don't really uh, uh fail they just kind of walk away they, they fade away uh, they they don't ever quit exactly it just kind of seems to uh, to dissolve i've had people say to me gee it's been two weeks and i haven't heard from that eight two weeks is 
is the blink of an eye. Um, somebody, you know, I, I do rejoice in having uh, worked with some of the most successful writers, uh, you know, on, on the planet, uh, starting with them before they were very successful. For example, David Kep, K-O-E-P-P. I was saying to him, he's so famous now that people actually pronounce his name correctly. They used to call him Cope. Um, David has written at, at least, uh, has written multiple pictures for Steven Spielberg, two of the Jurassic Park pictures, um, War of the Worlds. Maybe there's another one in there that, that he's done. A uh, gigantically successful writer. David says the secret of his success is the number 17. And what he means by that is 17 drafts. <laughs> uh, that's what it takes, he says, to, to really get it, get it right. You can't figure it out in your head. You got to get it onto the page, and then you got to throw away a lot of stuff. And what writers don't understand is that when you throw something away, that's not a, a, a failure. That's something you needed to do to find out uh, where your script uh, uh, had to go. I was good pals with Sid Field, now deceased. I miss him every day. He was a, a wonderful, sweet, sweet, sweet man, a, a mensch. Um, and I think most people know his name. He, he started, I think, this whole second wave that in the late 70s of screenwriting books. There's a new book on screenwriting, like every 20 minutes, it seems. I'm guilty. I have three. I don't mind. <laughs> it's funny. I'll tell you something <laughs> I just got. Uh, the, the Jeffrey Katzenberg, very famous yes. movie executive, said years and years, years ago, he said, we've got to stop using the word foreign in the United States to describe films that aren't American and markets that aren't American. We have to talk international. Uh, the world is bigger than the States, and film is bigger than, uh, you know, uh, the, uh, in America, the, the entertainment industry is the single biggest um, export, uh, the single biggest contributor to the favorable balance uh, of, of trade and so on. I just got uh, royalty statements from my publishers, uh, the publishers of my um, most recent screenwriting book. And I say publishers because one is my is, is the, uh, the world's biggest publisher, um, my American publisher, Random House, uh, Penguin Random House, Plume. Um, and the other publisher is my Beijing publisher publishing the, uh, uh, the Mandarin language edition of the book. And the, I won't say what the royalties were. That was the, that's between me and the Internal Revenue Service. <laughs> but, but the the royalties from the China, from the China version were fifty five zero fifty times larger than uh, <laughs> my American loyalties uh, uh, royalties. Uh, maybe that has something to do with the fact that with the fact that the book is newer in in China or something like that. But this is an international enterprise. It, yeah. it, it is really a um, not about regions so much as it is about uh, you know the the human condition. So stop focusing. Your best bet in life, and I think in a screenplay, to no small extent, is to stumble around blindly and stupidly. Um, and bump into things. And when you bump into something that you really like, ram onto that, hold on to that, and, and uh, see, uh, see where it takes you. Again, in your life uh, and in your, um, uh, uh, in your screenplay, I don't know um, uh, too many people who are very happy about what they're doing who aren't surprised by what they're doing. It was not really what they planned to do. So coloring outside of the lines and letting yourself play, because 
you're, the parallels that I'm getting from this, because I'm I'm a I'm a fan. I'm a I'm a fan boy. I love fan service. I love this industry. I love being able to be proxy of it with what I do in my daylight. Like, I I've had the opportunity to jump into it, but I just fucking love it so much to learn about the pro. Like, I like how the sausage is made, as much as I like watching the sausage cook in the pan, so to speak. But it sounds like what you're saying is that like life stumbling through it and learning is very much like writing stumbling through it learning grabbing what you love forming it into something like like pulling from you if you're if you're not on the page in some way shape or form it's probably not going to come out the way you want it yeah well you're touching on a very uh, profound theme it's really sort of the center of what i like to think i've developed over the over the years over the over scores of years uh teaching screenwriting you know aristotle um it's funny i think about jesus christ and aristotle these are the two um most invoked names on behalf of of precepts and principles that they never would have supported um for example i don't have to tell you about jesus you know all about that you, you see his name I heard about you know on in, in behalf of the most ferocious stuff can you imagine the, Jesus approving of this or that, <laughs> so what some of these people do. Um, but uh, uh, Aristotle, Aristotle is constantly uh, blamed for something that he didn't ever invent, which is the three-act structure. He never talked about acts. He talked about beginnings, middles, and ends. He said that the, the screenplay, this is the, the best, most practical advice that I uh, can imagine ever giving a writer that a screenplay has a beginning, a middle, and end. The beginning comes first. This is from Aristotle, from the Poetics. It's 2,500 years ago, ragged little pamphlet. He says, the beginning comes first, and uh, there's nothing before the beginning. Um, the beginning is the point before which you need nothing. And the end is last, um, and it's the point after which you need nothing. Now, I like to take a long silence after I say that, because I've been waiting my whole career as a teacher for somebody to say, Richie, wait a second. You just told us that this is practical advice. <laughs> uh, Where do I put this? Thing? I have a dog that died 11 years ago that knows that there's a beginning, a middle, and an end. The beginning is first. That's why they call it the beginning. Yeah. And there's nothing before the beginning. Uh, that's that's the nature of beginning, the definition of beginning, right? And likewise, the end is last. What possible use could that be? Um, and the answer is very much uh, 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 tons and tons of, of uh, practical use can be. Uh, for one thing, many, many movies, they don't start at the beginning. They start usually before the beginning. And movies go on. They don't really end at the point before which you need nothing. Uh, they go on usually after that point, more often than not. Indeed, movies are too long uh, uh, in general, I think, especially now. I like to, you know, I'm a, I'm a college professor, I'm retired, but I was at it so long, I have an occupational hazard, which is sometimes I just stop people in the street and give them a pop quiz. Um, <laughs> and here's one for you and, 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 and our family of, of, uh, uh, who are participating here. Um, how long should a screenplay be? Multiple choice. A, B, C, A, too long, B, too short, C. Exactly the right length. The answer is B, too short. There's no such thing as exactly the right length. When something's the right length and it's too long, you know, somebody says, 
you know, there's been a racial reckoning in this country, and I think maybe uh, uh, around the world. And last summer, when it was taking place, a lot of people walking around with signs that said "Enough!" Uh, exclamation point. Uh, but they didn't mean enough. They meant too much, right? Yeah. If somebody says that's enough, they don't mean that's enough. <laughs> I mean that's more than enough. That's too much. If you go on a vacation and you've had a good time and now you're ready to go home and you're looking forward to going home, you were there too long. You should be reluctant to go home if it's a really good vacation. You should be reluctant that the movie is ending. You should be glad that it's ending and checking check when is this and thinking. I mean, most movies I'm watching, I'm thinking, when I'm done with this, I feel like uh, coffee and, and, and uh, pastry, or am I in a, a soup and sandwich kind of, I'm not even watching the, watching the movie, you know? Yeah. So, so um, you know, and I sometimes talk about Spike Lee's uh, Do the Right Thing. Most everybody I know knows the movie. I like Spike's yeah. work. I judge an artist by his best work. I thought that was a really good movie. I think his best movie, uh, and I think it's an underappreciated movie, and I think it's one of the best movies I've seen in the last 50 years, is X, sometimes called Malcolm X. Yes, no, it's... It's, it's the Malcolm bio, but it's really called X, you know, and it's a great movie. But in Do the Right Thing, if you've seen it and you remember it, and at the end, uh, there's an insurrection taking place in the streets, yep. and um, Mookie, played by Spike himself... Uh, works at this pizza place. The pe the guy who owns the pizza store is Danny Aiello. He's just an independent businessman trying to, you know, run a pizza shop. He's not some oppressive corporation. And indeed, what does this neighborhood need? It needs jobs, and he's brought a job, and Mookie has that job. But now here, his brother's trashing the place. What's the right thing to do? And he does, Mookie, pick up uh, a, uh, a trash can and throw it through the plate glass window, joining the brother Spike, um, to, I think to his credit, and I give him this, he says he wasn't trying to recommend violence. He was just trying to ask the audience to decide for itself what's the right thing. Fair enough, but that's clearly the end of the movie. And uh, indeed, it fades very, out. Very powerful scene because it does. But it, then it's yeah. suddenly wham, it fades back in. And there's Spike as Mookie, and there's Danny Aiello, and they're seated at a table, and, and they're commenting on these issues uh, ideologically, politically, there's actually a crawl on the, on the screen text uh, f with language from a speech by Martin Luther King on nonviolence, and there's another crawl uh, from Malcolm um, about uh, uh, violence, a position that Malcolm would eventually renounce. Um, all I kept waiting for a crane to, to, to lower Ted Koppel, who was a very famous American newsman, moderator, facilitator in between them yeah. to run the movie. What happened to this movie? It's done already. Let me out of here. You know, it's going on. At, it, it's so easy to know what you have to do. Just imagine that it wasn't there. And if it still plays, then, then, then uh, you, you just didn't need it. What, what I have... Um, what I'd like to think I've developed over the years is what I call the biology of narrative. Uh, when you look at narrative, now my old friend Sid Field, as I mentioned, he said there's a beginning, middle, and end, and he said a, a screenplay is 120 pages. That's too long. Uh, back then, maybe that was okay, but now scripts tend to be shorter. I'm promising you if the reader opens that script and she sees 120 pages, she hates that script already. If she sees it's 103 pages, 98 pages, uh, she likes that script. Now, that 
that may change when she when she reads it, you know. But yeah. Um, but in any event, let's talk about 120. Sid said the first, the beginning is 30 pages, the middle is 60, and the end is 30. I don't. I agree that the beginning and the middle are shorter. I'm sorry, the beginning and the end is shorter than the middle. But here's the way really good movies work out uh, in terms of uh, uh, beginnings, middles, and ends. Very quick beginning, big middle, and the quickest part is the end. Um, that, what does that look like that you know in, in the world? It looks like an idealized, romanticized model of a human life, childhood, yep. and this big fat, and then a quick ending. Who raise your hand high if you're looking for a long, drawn out death with resuscitators and ventilators and IVs plugged in and, and, oh, and the, okay. you know, the, the paddles uh, the, starting your heart again? You know, she died quickly and quietly, peacefully, uh, you know, in her sleep. So, so a movie is really a model of a human life, really, structurally. And whose life? Who else is but the, the person who's writing that movie? And that's why all, you know, there's, a, there's one, I won't name him, but there's one very famous screenwriting guru, one of the self-appointed gurus who doesn't have the authority of the regents of the University of California vested in him, but very popular. And he says, the last thing that you should do is write your own personal little story um, I'm here to tell you, what he says you should do is, you, is if you want to be treated like a professional, you have to treat yourself like a professional. Again, this makes great sense what I'm saying. I don't believe a word of it. Um, I'm going to keep going. A serious professional writer will, will be aware of the trends, uh, wants to know what the, the, the grosses were the previous weekend, what's popular and hot right, right now. I'm here to tell you, if you do that, you are doomed what's popular and what's hot first of all i don't know what's popular and hot right now i'm in the middle of it and i can't i don't know anybody who can tell you what's popular and hot right now um but if we could identify it if there was some trend and like in algebra you say let x equal whatever it is let let x be the trend it's too late to get in on that trend because it is the trend it had to have been in the works uh you know a couple of years earlier can, go ahead can I ask you something on that? Because what you're what you're getting into is you're getting into the world of like you you come from a class of writer, and right now there is algorithms, and algorithms are guiding us to like things like they're they're taking away your choice, they're taking away your search engine to choose whatever you want to experience and accidentally find and enjoy. So when you're when you're saying this tight narrow box don't try to be in it don't try to follow the trends then how like the, wh how can we bring the, the your class back into it because it seems that's kind of forgotten with the netflix and the prime and the algorithm and the searching of what people want or is that just now how we kind of have to deal well i'm not i'm not sure if this is the, the way to answer it i i uh, but i'll try i i am um uh you know, for the last, I haven't swum in a year. <laughs> Why do I tell you that? Because I used, I used to swim every single day of the year. Yeah. Um, uh, seventeen hundred meters. If you take in notes, Jesus. Um, I don't have to. I can play it back. <laughs> <laughs> I only mention it because I remember one time in nineteen eighty-eight, uh, the Olympics <clears throat> were in Seoul, Korea, and the American swim teams, the Olympic swim teams coach. Uh, the women's swim team coach, the American women's swim team coach brought all of the uh, women swimmers 
to uh, six weeks before the games in Seoul. She brought them, he, uh, he brought them to UCLA to, uh, to work on for a couple of weeks. Then they would go for two more weeks to Honolulu. And then they would arrive two weeks before the games in Seoul. The idea being they would work out there. And by that time, they would be totally acclimated, would have no jet lag at all. Oh. You know, in a sport like swimming, just a few hundredths of a second is the difference between gold and nothing. So I had, the, they were actually swimming. We, they set aside a few lanes for them where I happened to swim on campus at UCLA. Uh, and I had the privilege of watching um, uh, champion swimmers, you know, go whip fast up and back me, including Janet Evans, who lives in uh, Cerritos. I'm pointing to Cerritos over there, <laughs> east of here. And I mean, the, the women, guess where they were from, the swimmers, just where you think, California, uh, Texas, and Florida. Um, and Janet Everson from Florida, and she has a very, very uh, sloppy stroke. It's too splashy. There's a lot of west wasted energy. It's not a graceful, uh, efficient stroke. Uh, there's only one thing she really does right, and you can guess what that is. She wins. She's just so fast. The water just boils around. I mean, you see steam coming off, off of the Dolphin. surface of the pool with her. So I heard there were, because there were all these champion athletes up there, there were, and their coaches, there was also uh, a substantial number of people from the press. And I overheard the women's swim team coach um, giving an interview to a, a reporter. And the reporter was asking him, why don't you uh, work with Janet Evans on her stroke? It's too splashy. It's too this, it's too that. And he said something that is so wise for um, uh, athletes training coaches, also for, for parents raising children, and also for teachers like me teaching artists, um, like screenwriters. Uh, and here's what he said again. The, the question was, why don't you work with her on her stroke to improve her stroke? And he said, of, of coaching athletes, he said, you know, half the job is showing the way, and the other half of the job is getting out of the way. And yeah. I find that writers get in our own way much, much too often, especially the way we were just talking about, trying to figure out the trends. I'll tell you a quick story I've been telling lately. Uh, it demonstrates this very, very effectively. Um, the class that I taught, I used to lecture, uh, you know, UCLA, we have three academic quarters instead of the more traditional two um, semesters. <clears throat> so um, I used to teach these three seminars every year, uh, scattered uh, now and then I would also lecture, but mainly I taught the, this eight writers around the table, everybody's writing a feature length screenplay. And, uh, and it ran, they had, a, you know, they had 10 weeks to do it. <coughs> And at the very first class, I would only take eight people in the class, but at the very first class, as many people as wanted to come could come and pitch. Uh, you know, the, there was no assigned readings. There were no exams. There was no paper except the paper, which is this, a professional quality feature length screenplay. Uh, and I, everybody had an opportunity quickly to tell the story, you know, that they, they wanted to, to, to tell the, uh, of the script that they were going to write if they got into the class that quarter. And I remember saying to everybody at the beginning of that class, before we go around the table, what, what's hot right now in Hollywood, this was around the, the early 80s, early to mid 80s. And the, the hottest picture was Beverly Hills Cop. Sure. Axel Foley. Uh, great movie. Everybody wanted to. Um, Eddie Murphy's uh, hot at the time. They were just looking for, for cop buddy 
action melodramas. Oh, like Lethal Weapon being... Nah, they were, yeah, they were Lethal Weapon written by UCLA's own uh, Shane Black. Um, so uh, that's what agents were looking for. Though, you know, Beverly Hills like Beverly Hills cop-like pictures. Yep. That's what the studios were looking for. That's what the production companies were looking for. I told that to everybody around the table. And I said, therefore, don't do that. <laughs> if you do that, you're going to be one of 600 scripts out there like that. Yeah. And you won't you outsmart won't yourself. <laughs> don't do something smart. Do something dumb. Do something stupid. I said, the stupidest thing you could do right now is write a Western. Nobody's writing Westerns. Nobody's doing Westerns. There hasn't been a Western produced. The lamest, most idiotic thing you do is not write a, write a Western. Write a Western. So one, one writer did. And it turned out to be a hilarious uh, Western, a comedy. I'll spare you the details. This is close to 40 years ago, I cannot remember where I parked my car, as I said <laughs> earlier, and I can't remember my children's names, but I could walk you through this story. That's how good it was. A very funny uh, story about a guy, got a painter making his way out west, dragging a, a, uh, uh, a wagon behind him. Doesn't even have a horse. He has to pull his own wagon. And in the wagon are painting supplies, you know, uh, canvases and, and the pigment and and linseed oil and, uh, you know, turpentine and brushes and things like that. And it's after the Civil War and towns are springing up all across the, uh, uh, the West. And every town has a saloon that's being built. And every saloon needs a naked lady over the, uh, uh, over the bar. There needs to be a big portrait, a big wide portrait of, the, of, a, of a naked lady. And he's been working his way West by um, uh, reaching the town, going to the saloon owner, and saying, listen, let me stay in your barn, provision me over a few days, and I'll, I'll give you a naked lady over the, uh, you know, over the uh, uh, bar. And so when he gets to the town of Paradise Gulch, and he does that, he paints the naked lady, uh, the naked lady looks very much like the wife of the mayor of that town. <laughs> you know, right down to a little wen, a little ward or a freckle or something in a place you'd have to know her really really well to uh, you know be aware of and so on and you can imagine how this unfolds it's hilariously funny western now earlier when we were chatting i talked about going to school with george lucas and john mealy's and caleb you know what the merchant was mentioning all of these little things and many 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 others but when i was back east my roommate in binghamton i went to harper college which has uh, been subsumed by uh uh, Binghamton University, it's one of the State University of New York campuses, one of the main research centers, one of four. And my roommate there was Andrew Bergman to this day. He lives in New York all these years and I'm out here, but we're still really, really good pals. Uh, and Andy's uh, claim to fame, his, 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 by the way, he's a very successful producer. I don't know if you, if you know the name or not, but uh, he, he wrote and, and directed, um, he's a writer, producer, director. He's had plays on Broadway. He wrote and directed um, Honeymoon in Vegas, oh. uh, The Freshman. He's written movies that he didn't direct. He's directed movies that he didn't, and so on. But his his original breakthrough was Blazing Saddles. Okay. And by the way, he he was a PhD student at at um, was he planning to become a movie director? No, he was planning to become oh. a history professor. Oh. He he got his PhD in history, Wisconsin, uh, and. Um, 
you know, that was that was his design, but he decided to write this treatment that he called Tex X about a uh, uh, kind of a 1968 hip black m man in 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 ha of of Harlem, but 1868 American West, uh, who um, with with the Civil War over and the slaves freed. Uh, and all these towns opening up, uh, one town is so uh, crime-ridden that nobody will be sheriff. They're even willing to, to allow a black guy to be the, be the sheriff. So that's Tex Exit became, um, of course, Blazing Saddles. Uh, now, Andy wrote a 90-page treatment. You shouldn't write a treatment at all. I never met a writer who, who likes a treatment. Uh, you can't really sell a treatment. Uh, and if you do write a treatment, it shouldn't be 90 pages. It should be like eight pages, 12 pages is already much too too long uh, for a treatment. So Andy, you know, made mistake, mistake, mistake. Nevertheless, <laughs> he showed this to an agent, this 90-page treatment. The legendary Knox Berger, now deceased in New York, and Knox got it to Warner Brothers, and they bought it, and they gave it to Mel Brooks. Uh, and Andy has... Um, it really launched Mel Brooks. It was his third movie, but his previous two had not done good business. Um, so here's another guy, example of a guy not following his goals um, and and reaching unparalleled, uh, you know, un unthinkable, unimaginable success. Um, the uh, 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 in any event, when this script was written in my class, the Funny Western, Andy had by that time become hugely successful at his own production company. Yeah, yeah. And I said, uh, I, I said to him, hey, you like funny westerns? Here's a funny western. So he read it, and he and his producing partner immediately acquired it. Now, they only uh, optioned it, and only for very little while and for very little money. But you understand, a lot of writers don't get it, that a short option is better for the writer than a long one. He's given away less. There's more pressure on the producer to produce. Um, I overheard a couple of writers uh, bragging uh one was bragging you know one was saying hey he has an option uh he just got an option from so and so for six months so somebody else said well i got i got an option for a year and he was kind of pleased and, <laughs> yeah, they, you know there's a, there's an old joke i didn't tell him the joke but the joke is uh, there's a contest and first prize is a week in philadelphia and second prize is two weeks in philadelphia <laughs> uh you know long option bad short option. so this guy um they gave him very little money, but some money. And they only optioned it for a month. And nobody bought it in that month. And so after the month, it came back to him. And he still had 100% of the rights. And he had, you know, the little bit of money that he'd gotten for it, such as it was. But that's not all that had happened to him in that month. He'd been shown around under the best circumstances. Uh, not by himself. They wouldn't have written, uh, read him. Not by his... His agent, he didn't have an agent, but even if you have an agent, it's not as good as being shown around by a, a, a producer with a track record for making hit movies wants to make your movie. Yeah. So he was read not by underlings, but by all of the heads of the studios. There's nothing wrong with being read by underlings. Sometimes I think you're better off with underlings being read by somebody who needs to make her career while you're trying to make your career. Maybe, you know, you can kind of link together. That, that's so that you don't peak. So, so, um, uh, uh this this guy went from being completely unknown to very well known in that month. So that's all, he, and he keeps the hundred the the uh, uh, all the rights to the script plus the little bit of money that he got for it. Not such a bad deal, and it's still not all he got for it. If you think about it, imagine 
you're being shown around under those circumstances. At one place, Fox, at 20th Century Fox, they said, you know, we don't want to make this movie, but we love this guy's voice. It's a fresh new voice. And we have a problem script we have not been able to get an A-list Hollywood writer to get a handle on. We want to give this guy a shot at it. So they hired him. And since it was somebody else's entire script he was rewriting, and it was his first job ever, all they paid him to do that was $10,000 a week. Uh, they guaranteed him eight weeks. It went 10 weeks, do the math. Yeah. It's not the kind of fortune that, that it used to be, but it, it keeping guacamole till uh, Cinco de Mayo, <laughs> or, or even Jesse says to September, a, a, an even more important uh, uh, holiday. Um, so, uh, um, you know, he got this fantastic job, and it's still not the end of the reward from writing this dumb script, a Western, the stupidest thing you possibly do. Look how much you got out of it. We're still not done. If I let you think quietly for a minute, imagine you're an unrepresented writer, and 20th Century Fox wants to make a deal with you for a rewrite at 10 <laughs> Agents and literary managers will line up at your door, you know, and you can pick and choose. He chose wisely, and he has a, a superior career running now over the decades um, not by being smart, but by, by being dumb. Uh, follow your heart. It's such a cliche, but cliches get to be cliches because it's so true. Uh, you know, there's a very popular book. I don't understand it. And I don't mean to be unkind. The, the author is deceased, can't defend himself, but I'm talking about, um, save the cat, um, save the cat, the, uh, Schneider, Schneider, Blake Snyder wrote that suggests that you go out into the streets before you write your script and you and and tell try to find young people they're the main movie audience and um, run it past them and see if they would respond uh, to that I mean that seems pretty sensible and reasonable but I think it's just hateful imagine not having something that you're dying to write about that you're really passionate to to write about uh, and asking other people what what you should write about that just seems like poisonous but imagine that you're not the writer but you're just walking down the street and a writer comes up to you and says to you what blake suggested writers say excuse me sir can i talk to you for a minute yeah, yeah, what, what do you want i'm a writer and i just wanted to take a moment i have an idea for a screenplay and be, before i get started on it i was wanted to try it out on you know somebody like you yeah just to see whether or not this would be something that you'd be you know interested in so supposing you're that person that they approach, and let's say you're so generous and so humane that you say, okay, <laughs> you know, sure. tell me. And let's say they say to you, let's say the guy says, oh, thanks very much. What I would like to do is a series. I want to do a streaming series about a, a chemistry teacher, uh, an American uh, high school chemistry oh, teacher. Boy who um, gets a cancerous diagnosis and so he goes into the uh, illegal drug, the you know, the methamphetamine business. That is the stupidest idea that I ever heard of. <laughs> but I am one of those people. I believe that Breaking Bad is one of the greatest achievements in the history of civilization. I agree with you. Uh, you know, people talk about, they're now, uh, people talk about having social impact and uplift in, in movies and so on. Movies don't have uplift, and if you try to have social impact, you fall on your on your face, no question about it. But look 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 at Vince Gilligan and his writers, unspoken but nevertheless very very profound. 
in Breaking Bad is the question, why is in the United States of America does a, a high school chemistry teacher get $43,000 a year and have to work at a car wash after school? I mean, that's a uh, powerful statement to make without getting didactic and, and, and ideological and, and intellectual and, and, and so on. Oh. Imagine a guy comes up to you on the street and says, I have an idea for a movie. What what if you what if you said to the guy who told you about Breaking Bad? I look, I gotta I gotta tell you that doesn't sound that, that sounds hopeless. That sounds ridiculous. Who would? What if the what if the writer said to you? Yeah, well, I think it's going to run sixty three hours. You know, of unparalleled genius. You know, <laughs> you figure crank up the lithium on this guy's drip. <laughs> uh, yeah. Now imagine somebody comes up to you and says, "I got an idea for a movie." Uh, can I tell the people, okay, tell me your idea. Well, this guy stutters, but he uh, has to give a speech. See? So he hires a speech therapist. Uh, they work on the speech. He gives the speech. The King's speech. Yeah. What could be dumber than that? And as you mentioned, nevertheless, what if you said to him, that's, look, you asked me, I'm going to tell you. I hate it. It's awful. What if the guy was offended as a writer and he said, well, I, I, I think it's going to win the Oscar for best movie. And and best screenplay, you'd figure this guy, you know, nine one one, nine one one. So ideas are useless and worthless. What's important is is a a story, and um, uh, people just fixate too much on on the notion of the idea. When you have a great idea for a movie, that's all you've got. What remains after that is what everything. Uh, you know, the characters have to be invented, the dialogue has to be composed, and, and so on. So there is something to be said for uh, uh, not outsmarting yourself, uh, following your heart. Remember, the purpose of a movie um, is uh, not to teach you a lesson. It's to make you feel something passionate. And it doesn't have to be um, uh, a good feeling. Imagine you're walking past a theater and suddenly the, the door's open. The movie's obviously just broken. It's just ended and people are screaming at it. They're all <laughs> sobbing, <laughs> really leaping, you know, with tears running and snot coming out. You'd say to yourself, wow, that, you know, that was, must have been some sad movie. They all seem pretty miserable. I, I You know, that's one movie I'm not going to go see. The hell you wouldn't go see that movie. You'd, you'd immediately cancel. You'd stand up your date or your next appointment to get in line to get a ticket to see that movie, uh, to, to, to experience what it, what it was that, that, uh, uh, that, that caused that kind of a reaction. And I'm telling you if you, can, if you can make people feel something strong, uh, it doesn't matter what that feeling is. People will come to the to, to to see that movie. I was actually at an evangelical Christian conference. I'm not an evangelical Christian. I'm not even a Christian. Uh, what was I doing at this conference? Five hundred pastors invited to Chicago for the weekend, all all across America, from all across the states. Some, I think, also from Canada. Um, why was I? What they want with me? Well, it was the subject was was narrative in scripture. If you look at uh, uh, the Old Testament, the New Testament, if you look at the Muslim Bible, you look at at, at um, the Quran. There are there's advice, there are principles, but mainly it's stories, and they're really really bloody ugly stories. They're not 
comforting, reassuring uh, stories. They're, they're, they're not a warm blanket of stories. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, the first thing in Genesis, right in the first book, is the story of Lot, who whose daughters he's he's in his seventies. His daughters got him drunk. Both daughters got him drunk one night and then the other night. One daughter, the other daughter, and they have sex with their father and conceive a child. I mean, this is not some tabloid. Someone, this is holy scripture, you know, the very first book of a book that is holy to Jews, Christians, and Muslims. You know, just about everybody on the planet. You know, there's about three billion Christians and and about a billion and a half Muslims, and I think just about 11, 11 Jews. Um, very, 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 very few of us. But in any event, um, uh, I remember telling the preachers that if you want people you want your parishioners to stay in the church on Sunday morning, even after they leave the church, by which I mean, you want them to be hefting the sermon. You want them to be yeah. thinking about it all day. If it was provocative and meaningful enough, even better than that would be if they were considering pastor Jones's sermon later on in the week, you don't need to make them feel good. You just have to make them feel. And that's what screenwriters have to do with their audiences, scare them half to death. Uh, make them weep, uh, provoke them, upset them, make them angry. What? They'll show up at the, if you try to serve a worthy cause, um, if you try to teach a, um, a lesson, uh, you're doomed. My parting shot on this subject is I remember, you know, I've done a lot of media. I have uh, had my 15 minutes, it was really 15 years of fame. I was on all of these talk shows. And once on the Today Show, I was usually defending violence and sex in the media. People think, oh, here's a uh, you know tenured college professor in a film school. He must hate Hollywood's crass commercialism and, and all of the sex and violence. And here I am actually defending it. I think that, that uh, sex and violence has a proper place in, uh, in dramatic narratives. Um, and uh, uh, so I was battling with, with Bill Donahue. He's the head of the Catholic League. Uh, we met in the green room at the Today Show in New York. And by the way, we got on great. I love Bill. we become fast friends. Uh, but he was, a, he was a, a griping about uh, Ron Howard's uh, about-to-be-released movie, um, the adaptation of Dan Brown's book, The Da Vinci Code. And he said it was... Um, uh, uh, his objection to it was that it, it was inaccurate in terms of uh, the way it depicted Catholic history and Catholic theology. And I said, when my turn came, uh, I said, uh, uh, when I'm really hungry and I want a tuna fish sandwich, and I do like to <laughs> open with something that's like, wow, and that's not a bad way to open a screenplay. What can this possibly happen? Because it makes people curious. They want to hear more. Yeah. I'm here to tell you if, if somebody reads your script and they read the very first top of the very first page and they want to read the rest of that page, want to read the rest of that page, that's rare. If they get down to the bottom of that page and want to turn the page, want to turn the page, that's rare. How do you get them to do that? By being a little mysterious. So I'm opening with, uh, well, I'm hungry. And uh, I really want a, you know, uh, a tuna fish sandwich. I don't go to the hardware store. <laughs> I get it. So that's text and subtext. It really means, you. the text is what I just said. The meaning is, if you want a history lesson, 
if you want a lesson in theology, don't go to the movies. You're going to get a bad history lesson. You're going to get a bad um, uh, 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 theology sermon. Yeah. And you're going to get a bad, a bad movie. Uh, art, Picasso says, is the lie that tells the uh, the bigger truth. And anyway, I'm running on and on. I I I, I don't want to um, avoid any questions that you might have or arguments <laughs> with me. Oh, Richard, I. I, there's a reason I just sat here. The, the, I'm just, it's a lesson in creating character and, and you're, the things that you're spouting are just mind blowing me because of the way Thank I, you. the way I enjoy film is the way you talk about writing characters. So I'm, I'm just looking at the writing of a character and the processing of the world, like the creation of the world a lot different. Mm -hmm than just being enamored by, you know, superheroes on screen or, you know, great exchanges and funny meet cutes like that. That's that's the text. Right. But you're t I'm getting a lot of education on the subtext now and the depth and feeling of stuff. But yeah, I do. I just kind of want to know what like like you what what do you enjoy these days? Because you've watched the evolution of screenwriting take place. You've watched the business unfold. You've watched you've watched it go from. I feel it, it, the benchmark is a billion dollars, and it's so sad that that's a benchmark. It shouldn't. It should. Profitability, yes, is a thing. This is a business. At the end of the day, you're more aware of that than anybody I could ever talk to right now. You, you you're foremost knowledgeable on that. So, my question now is: is that caring of the audience, right? And writing smart writing, and not and being too afraid to write. You know, like can HBO style writing infect? primetime television or is primetime too much of a, a business still and just watching all those things change what's how, how does that what how do you see that well i first of all i believe there's only two kinds of movies i don't i, I think genre is bullshit okay. um there are just two genres and here they are good movies bad <laughs> movies <laughs> i love it that's cut and dry good. well i mean you've seen uh, really really great movies often mixed genres uh, a brazen, blatant example, maybe the best of them all, is, is uh, uh, Kubrick's, uh, um, you know, Dr. Strangelove. Yes. A nail-biting tale of nuclear terror and also a, a literally pie-in-the-face, you know, banana peel-slipping comedy, slapstick comedy. You know, they really had a pie fight. They didn't uh, use it, but he actually had a pie fight in the in the war room. <laughs> uh, they got cut, cut, out, cut out of the picture. Uh, Hitchcock's movies... Um, uh, often have very hilarious little moments in them. Uh, Shakespeare, you know, famous, invented co what they call comic relief with Macbeth, where it got so intense and so grim that he throws in the drunken uh, night porter scene uh, yeah. uh, in, the, in, the, in the, uh, the middle of the picture. So what's a good picture? A good picture is one that we only had one, we only had one rule at UCLA, uh, and it was just three words. You can do anything you want, write anything you want. The only thing is, uh, don't be boring. That's it. Very, very difficult to keep people's attention for 100 minutes, uh, not to be boring. Most stuff is, uh, you know, is pretty boring. Most art just doesn't work out. It's a small part of it that um, that works uh, that works well. Let me let me let me address though what you were talking about about the billion dollar thing. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I don't like that. You know, I'm sick of these fireball franchises, comic books and so on, but two major changes have happened in, in, uh, 
technologically now in the last decade or two. And they bode very, very well for filmmakers and, and also for audiences, for people who like to watch films. The first thing is the collapse of uh, production costs. Yeah, you can spend a quarter of a billion dollars, a half a billion dollars to make a movie. But a guy, you know, people send me stuff all the time. Uh, uh, they send me stuff to read. They send me clips and videos and whole movies sometimes. I do not have it in my heart to just ignore that. I will look at anything anybody sends me with just the beginning usually. Uh, I saw a script the other day that came to me and it said, <clears throat> the very opening said, you know, the very top of the first page said, exterior, uh, desert highway, day, okay. Nothing wrong with that, right? Now, underneath that, it said something like, uh, the sun beats down on the road as that meanders through the parched landscape uh, to the mountains at the horizon. Every single word of that unnecessary. It said, you just said exterior desert highway day. Yeah. yeah. Why are you telling me something again? Why are you telling me something again? Why are you telling me something? Yeah, I mean, I, I, do I have to make the <laughs> What use it? Like, uh, I, and I, I can't. I, how many, look tonight, turn on the table tonight and see how many times somebody will, one character will tell another character what the audience already, already knows. Uh -huh. Oh, hang on, hang on uh -huh. just a second. My phone, that's another thing that makes me crazy. Everything is on the fucking phone. Guess what's that? Oh, this is Harry calling. I have the report from the. Oh, it's Harry. He's calling for. He has the report. I told Madeline that yeah, that it's you and that. What's the report? Well, uh, the, the take him. Well, he says that it should. Uh, let me tell Marilyn. There's people talking on the. My wife and I saw a, 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 a thing recently. We stuck with it for about an hour and a half. Uh, in in the first hour, I counted eleven phone calls. What about no phone calls? What about stay yeah. away from the? Keep your people off the off the freaking phone for God, for, God, for God's sake. That, that, so is, in any event, is that, that, this guy that, sent me, uh, um, so most of the stuff I see, I don't have to look at, you know, I, if I read a script like that, Desert Highway, you know, uh, uh, and then it's repeating itself, I can see this guy just doesn't understand. I'm not, I'm going to be polite, but I'm not going to, I'm just not going to, if all I did was read everything that was sent to me I, and, and never went to the toilet and I went to sleep and I've had a meal, uh, I would scratch, I wouldn't even scratch the surface of what comes to me. So somebody sent me a, a whole movie that he made from New Zealand. And I started it and I immediately watched the whole thing. It runs about an hour and 40 minutes about the right length. He set it all in a, um, uh, a single location, that is to say a highway rest stop. So there's the gas islands. Uh, there's the convenience store, there's maybe there's a little motel there, there's a little cafeteria. Um, so the different, you know, there's the service bay where they, where they repair the cars and so on. I'm telling you, this was brilliant. And he spent $10,000 on it. It has all kinds of, when I was a film student 50 something years ago, the big thing was a crane shot. Everybody wanted to do um, Orson Welles opening to Badge of Evil. Is that what it's called? Touch of Evil? You know, the uh, uh, thing shot ostensibly in Tijuana, really Venice here in, in Los Angeles um, with Charlton Heston uh, doing a very bad uh, Spanish accent. Um, that uh, uh, opens with a long crane shot. Everyone want to do that crane shot. It cost like $8,000 then. 
to rent the crane. But now you can do it for, for $45 with a, with a little, uh, you know, uh, drone. I'm telling you, this was a magnificent movie. And I watched the whole thing, not because I felt an obligation to this guy, but because it was a good movie. You can make a movie if you want to. Now you don't need a lot of money to do it. The, the other thing that's changed is distribution. When I came to town, there were uh, three networks and seven studios. Now there's, there's I don't know, hundreds and hundreds of networks. If you consider every, um, you know, website a, a a channel, which it sort of is, it's like a billion channels probably in the, in the world. There's so it's so easy to get distribution. You have the same thing. Your phone that that you can use to make the movie can also distribute the movie. So the question now is, how do you get attention? And the good news, more good news, you don't need that much attention anymore because um, uh, the costs have, 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 have collapsed. So you don't need to get that many people to, to pay for it. The result is there's so much more stuff available this, for audiences and that. You know, what's not to like about that? My wife and I, uh, you know, we're old people. We don't have too much attention span. From, we can't do much more than an hour, you know, so we'll watch a, an episode of a series or we'll watch the first hour of a movie. Um, and um, especially when it's a series, we have started a large number of series that we, we abandoned. Nothing yep. wrong with that given a chance. But my point is we have seen a fair now, you know, pr uh, uh, productions and parts of productions from Korea, Indonesia, Poland, Finland, Iceland, Germany, Spain, France, England. I just think that's fantastic that that we're able able to do that. There's so much more uh, available for audiences to, to to choose among, and so many more opportunities for filmmakers uh, to make their movies. So this is not a bad time. It's the it's the best time. The kind of things that go on in the studios with those billion dollar projects. That's just one corner of the industry there's nothing wrong with that um but uh it would be wrong if that was all there was and now we know that there's much more than just that well I, and i think the i mean if there's a silver lining in in covid and i mean like i i was talking about our industry here before and and how it it talk about collapse definitely i think right now is a great time for people to be like well they the big blockbusters really had the brakes pumped on them and a lot of things have slowed down and the things that normally would be shadowed by a Marvel or a DC or any of those things have a chance to get some light on them, some spotlight themselves. So like I, I I'm kind of hoping that the resurgence of like dumb shit, like you're saying, make something dumb. We do dumb shit here all the time. The primary function of this was chicken wings and beer in a restaurant going what would you do if you had the batmobile like that's dumb shit right it's real it's real life meaning fake life so i've i've always loved dumb the dumber the idea the more attractive it is it, well it's funny uh, uh i mean to cut you off no 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 go ahead i was going to say uh back in the um in 1999 as the millennium was closing i got a call it must have been a slow news day and I got a call from a reporter who wanted to know what I thought was the best movie of the 90s. Okay. And for a minute, I thought to myself, let's see, what did I like that I've seen? And was it in the 90s? That, well, it was, well, was that the 90s? And in the midst of trying to figure this out, just in a moment, I suddenly had an insight 
that is one of the most profound, uh, one of the deepest insights I've ever had in my life. And here it is. It suddenly occurred to me that in this vast universe, um, and they say that there are parallel, an infinite number of parallel such universes in all of the vastness that there is in this world and in other worlds, <laughs> if, if there are other worlds, there is just not one single thing less important than what some film school professor thinks is, is the best movie of the 90s. I mean, what could be less important than that, you know, than what, I, what Richie Walter thinks is the, the best movie of the 90s. And so I suddenly, I realized it's so unimportant. I should just say something interesting. And so I blurted out, Terminator 2. Yeah. Now I chose, I chose Terminator 2 for a couple of reasons. One, yeah. They're not expecting me, you know, I'm a film professor, they expect me to, to cite, uh, you know, some Bulgarian, uh, you know, uh, uh, filmic tone poem. Yes. They're not thinking I'm going to go with, 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 with the second chapter of a, of, a, of a trillion dollar Hollywood franchise with Arnold in it, you know. So that's one reason I did it. I just like to, to do what's not expected. And by the way, when you write your screenplays, don't do what's expected. You know, all of these Marvel, the reason I don't go to those movies is the reason other people do go. Those movies will give you what you, they deliver to audiences what the audiences expect. Yes. When I go to movies, I don't want what I expect. I want my <laughs> expectations exceeded. I, yeah. I, you know, I want to be torn apart and, 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 and turned upside down and inside out. Anyway, I think, I have to tell you, I think Terminator 2 is a really great, moving. Uh, I often cite the beginning of it as a great example of text and subtext. People talk about things being too on the nose, too much textual, not enough subtextual. Perfect example, right at the beginning of, of, of Terminator, he, he lands, you know, he comes, he emerges naked from the sky, thrown down onto this lawn way out in the uh, boonies outside a biker bar along some lost highway. And there's a million bikes parked out in front. They're really busy getting rock and roll coming from there. He um, enters the bar stark naked. And everybody's looking at him. And he's looking at everybody. And you can see he's, from his point of view, he's gauging people to see how big. And then he sees one guy who's his size. Now, this is Arnold Schwarzenegger. So when he sees a guy who's his size, it's a big, big guy. <laughs> and it's a tough guy with a bandana and a pool cue. He's shooting pool. And Arnold steps up to him and says, um, you know, if he sees that he's the right size, he walks right up to him, stark naked in the middle of this biker bar. And he says to him, I think it's the first line of dialogue in the movie, he says, give me your clothes and your motorcycle. <laughs> yep. That's, that's not it. a bad uh, Arnold, huh? Uh, now, here's what the guy doesn't say to him. He doesn't say, are you out of your, you out of your mind? I ain't going to, you, you think I'm going to get, <laughs> you, you naked Austrian, what are you, he doesn't say anything like that. Do you remember what he says? Anybody remember what he says? He says, again, Arnold says, give me your clothes and your motorcycle. And what does he say? He says, you forgot to say please. <laughs> so there's text and subtext, isn't it? Yeah. And by the way, he's going to like beat him with the cool cue. Arnold just picks him up like this, like I could, you know, lift up my hat you know that and then what you don't see is the fight banging jay takes the toilet no he picks him up off the floor the very next frame arnold is now wearing that outfit he's down the highway roaring along on this motorcycle 
all of that happened in the head of the viewer. You don't need to show that on the screen. Finally, about uh, Terminator 2, it has something really important to say about the nature of the human condition. At the very end, Arnold, who's a Terminator, a robot, uh, what is the difference between a robot and a human being? Human beings can feel things. And he suddenly, as he becomes human, he can feel. And what is it that he feels? He feels pain. And if you are somebody who feels pain, and there's nobody on this planet gets away without heartache and grief and sorrow and disappointment, frustration and physical pain as well. If you have terrible, terrible pain and you've seen Terminator 2, maybe, maybe you get some solace in recognizing that the fact that you feel pain is testimony to another fact. And the fact is that you're a human being, you're a member of this, this family of human beings. That's, an, in, that's a really important uh, thing to say that to be human is to be is to be able to feel to be able to feel means yes from time to time great joy great ecstasy i hope for everybody or probably not for everybody certainly i've had that uh, opportunity god bless me i've known great ecstasy and great great satisfaction but uh, i've also known the opposite of that as everybody everybody does and when i do feel down and dark Maybe I get some solace. Maybe I get some affirmation. Maybe I get some strength from having seen Terminator 2. Yeah, you know, when you when you put it in that lens, or when you apply that lens to that movie, it's funny because I will like I love I love watching everything. I'm some people call me a shill, but I'm like I just love it. I love it for its bad. I love it for its good. I love it for its folly. I love it for its humor. Whatever. Like I'll try because. To some uh, um, a local reporter, uh, Roland King, told me that to even get something made is an achievement. So you don't have to applaud. You have to applaud the effort. You don't have to applaud the product, right? So there's 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 that line of thinking. But I have just now looked at Terminator Two through a different lens, and that's why I watch movies over and over and over again, and not new stuff because there's emotion attached to them. There's moments where you might not even be thinking it's in your subconscious. But now that I think about Arnold feeling pain, which transcends him from robot to human, then asking yourself, are you a human? If you feel no pain, like there's a lot of philosophical questions you can kind of pull from, you know, a half naked Austrian asking for <laughs> for a motorcycle and a leather jacket, you know, on the nose. Like you said, it's not it, the subtext and context. Mm -hmm. Well, it's interesting when you say by watching movies a second time, uh, multiple times, which is what we do with the movies we really like. We like to watch them over and over and over. Um, and the question arises, why do we do that? Um, after we've seen it once, we know every single thing that's going to happen in that movie. Uh, how can it be as good? Is it going to be as good the first, you know, as it was the first time? The answer is, if it's really a classic, if it's really a brilliant, brilliant film, um, and you watch it again, it won't be as good as, as the first time. It'll be better than the first time. You'll see things that you didn't see previously. You'll, uh, uh, the answer to the question, by the way, this goes back to what we were talking about at the very beginning of our get together here, which is the, the beginning, the middle, and the end of the model of a human uh, life. Um, 
why do we watch a movie uh, uh, over and over that we already know everything there is to know about it? Because there's something satisfying. It's like looking in the mirror and seeing an, a, a reflection of ourselves. You know, I told you that I grew up in New York City. And I went to high school. I lived in Queens, but I went to high school in Manhattan. I used to take the train, what was called the BMT. And uh, in this, along the subways, on the, on, on the stations, on the beams, uh, the columns that support the... Uh, uh, the ceilings of the stations there are vending machines chewing gum chocolate whatever and um i don't think chewing gum i don't think they have any chewing gum there and i'm afraid people stick it under the seats like they don't sell chewing gum in movie theaters interestingly yeah and you have to think about that um it's too many targets but but uh uh the reason I mention it is that, and again, I've mentioned something, and I'm, what, what is he talking about? Well, you mentioned something that doesn't seem, but then you bring it back to what we're talking about, which is screenwriting. Every one of those machines, those vending machines, has a little mirror. Certainly many, many of them do. And if you're a people watcher, as I am, and I think most screenwriters are, most artists are, whatever their format, whatever their medium, whatever the platform, you'll notice that people walk along and then they stop at the vending machine and they look at themselves in that mirror and kind of fix themselves <laughs> up. Then they move down and they do the same thing when they get to the next one. Why are they doing that? I, I think it's because we, we're not really sure we're here. I mean, maybe this, didn't you ever wake up from a dream that you thought was not a dream, but you thought that was real? <clears throat> How do you know this isn't a dream? Yeah, are we wake walk uh, waking life? There's a movie about it. Link later. Um, are we wake? Are we sleepwalking through life and wake walking through? Uh huh. And well, I mean, you know, the 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 uh, uh, it's funny, and the I like to talk about the uh, character, the Char the Charles Manson case. Uh, Charles' lawyer, Charlie's lawyer, was was died, I think, last year. Irving Canarick, and he was a very um, notorious obstructionist. Um, he believed if you have a, a hopeless uh, client and they don't get any more hopeless than Charlie, your only way to serve him is to uh, um, delay. So he would just object to anything, uh, anything you could do to delay the, and slow down the trial. And at one point, Vincent Bugliosi, who was the prosecutor, who was now deceased, but I knew him, we had the same agent. Vin, Vinny was also a writer. Bugliosi uh, wants to swear in a witness for the uh, prosecution. And uh, the witness sits down and Bugliosi says to him, uh, says the witness, would you state your name for the record? Objection. Canaric is on his feet. Objection. So the judge says, you object to the, the uh, witness stating his name for the record? Yeah. He says, that's right, Your Honor, you heard me correctly. Is, well, do you want to share? You know, in California, we, we don't tell anything, a remark, a report. We just share everything. He says, do you want to share with the court any foundation supporting that objection? He says, certainly, you're on a hearsay. You know, hearsay is testimony you've been told. You, you're not really an eyewitness, but somebody told you about it. That's not allowed. It's secondhand. So he's saying that reporting to his, his name to the jury uh, to the courtroom is uh, hearsay. How does he know what his name is? It was except that it was told to him by oh, his parents oh. and, it, oh, and wow. people who talked to him. But the, the, of course, the judge dismissed that objection. But isn't it interesting? How do we know who we are? Uh, how much of it, it it comes from who we actually are? Our DNA, our flesh and blood. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And how much of it is what's reflected back 
to us from from what others perceive us to be very interesting very fundamental question and it's a question that the writers grapple with all the time i think in in their screenplays yeah no i'm now looking at a movie in a whole different way because now that's a like that's why we like movies because it's a reflection of us now we understand who we are through the retelling of a, a tale over like a like folklore essentially it will yes. be at one point like if you look through the library of media that the human condition or the human species is going to make we're putting it all on screen to be able to watch it instead of what we're doing with ours where we have to read it right it's dead sea scrolls it's tablets it's whatever this will be like put in a tape to see what the human spirit thought of that idea at that time and and hopefully we get it right so that when people look back they're like oh yes this did make like we it was replicated enough through writing that it it matches it mirrors and then we we understand who we are um i got a couple more for you before i let you go here and this is one sure i thought having seen what you've seen and, and having your lens through everything which is such a beautiful array of how you look at screenwriting and character creation like it's it's nice to talk to somebody who not that i haven't but I, you're the first person i've really talked to about the writing process so um i feel i'm, I'm now i'm <laughs> well, thank you one. thank you um but tv tv is now and i think hbo has and you would know this better than me so totally correct me if i'm wrong but HBO really was the flagship of smart writing and asking more of an active watching. If you miss something, it, 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 it's 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 layered in there. It's part of the story, and it might not seem so important, but you have to pay attention for the for the whole piece, for the whole orchestra to make sense. Um, but is TV now the new movie going forward? Because Sorry, and TV now the is TV now the new like is T, TV's getting the bigger budgets. TV's getting the bigger stories and, and more arc to create with. And so once upon a time, movies being the big screen, TV being the little screen, is that maybe changing now that TV's getting more respect for what you can what you can put out there as a medium? It's funny. People always like to, to bad rap TV. I know. Uh, you know, from its earliest days. And, you know, before I came to you, the previous generation, they, I remember one faculty I heard about one to student was told by a teacher that, well, maybe your stuff you could write for TV, you know, I mean, yeah. it was an insult, even though from the earliest days, there was great genius on TV. Yeah, there, there always has been. And that, that uh, from the I, very early 50s, genius stuff on, 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 on TV and some of the greatest thing I've ever, stuff I've ever seen on TV uh, that I've ever seen anywhere has been on, on TV. And especially now with streaming, I have never in my life, I've seen stuff as good as, but never better than the Sopranos. I've never seen anything better than Breaking Bad. I've seen stuff as good as that rarely. I think The Sopranos is as good as that, but, but you know, uh, they're, they're absolute, absolute top. I'll tell you, I don't think it really matters. Okay. Um, you know, when I, the very first movie ever made, the very first moving picture, do you know what it is? It's a um, trolley car. It's a, a clip of about I don't know, 20 or 30 or 40 seconds, and it shows a trolley moving down the street at uh, high noon in uh, Orange, New Jersey. That's the first movie ever, 19, uh, 1892, I think. How did that get to be the first movie? Well, that's because that's where it was in Orange, New Jersey. That's where Thomas Edison's studio was, his, 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 his workshop. Um, that's where he invented the kinetoscope or, you know, the movie camera, the movie projector. And since, you know, once he 
develop the thing and you want to try it out you don't take it to canton ohio or or winnipeg you do where you are they went out and into the street now also in those days very low emulsion very um uh slow film speeds uh so you need a lot of light uh remember in those uh they were nowadays it's for since sound came it was 24 frames a second but prior to that it was 16 frames a second it's still like a 16th exposure actually even smaller than that um so uh, they needed a lot of light so they did it at noon that you know in the sunshine and why the trolley well you don't invent a a um moving picture camera and then try it out on a still life a vase with a rose in it sitting on the windowsill you know that's not what you're going to photograph you're going to photograph something that moves so that explains why that first movie is the is the trolley car now you can imagine people looking at that in 1892 93 like fuck me look at it, it moves you know <laughs> yeah. this isn't this is astounding you know and it really must have been, but very briefly, after a while, been there, done that. So they started, people would no longer pay to see that. Ah, the hell with that. So they, they, um, uh, they would take the cameras all around the world. You no longer had to, you could see the, the natural wonders of the world without traveling. You just go to the Nickelodeon and see it. And you'd, you'd see those very early movies, turn of the century, um, uh, Bedouin tribesmen on on camelback caravanning past the the, the pyramids of giza uh you'd see uh, indigenous families underneath the falls at victoria you know um, you'd, you'd see all kinds of things that you could not see in your and that was interesting for a little while but that got pretty pretty boring in a hurry too and in 19 i think 03 or 04 maybe 05 comes the great train robbery yeah. Um, there had already been a kind of narrative of a film, the uh, the Moon one by the Meliers in France a few years earlier. But in The Great Train Run, we actually have a scripted story where stuff happened. Now, since then, um, so many things have changed. They're no longer short films. They're now long films. They're no longer black and white. They're in color. Then they're, they're no longer silent. Uh, they are in uh, in in sound. Uh, they're no longer um, uh, at, uh, on, on film. They're, you know, they're, they're no longer analog. For the most part, they're on digital media, and increasingly, so everything has has changed except one thing, and that is narrative. They still tell stories, yeah. And it doesn't matter if the story's on TV or on the big screen or on on your your little, uh, 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 you know, handheld uh, telephone if you're watching it. If it's a good story. People will get engaged by that. I've already told you, if you uh, if something happens in a movie, the beginning of the movie, and makes you curious about what happens after that, that's unusual. But that's what you have to do. And you have to keep that up for 100 pages if, it's a, if we're doing feature length. If you're doing Vince Gilligan and, and, and you, and you're, you're, or, or David Chase and you're doing years and years, you're going to have to keep that up for, for maybe yeah. you know, dozens of hours, scores of, of hours. Um, what's harder than that? That's just the most difficult uh, job on, on the universe, to sit alone in a room and invent stuff that uh, will, um, uh, uh, you know, engage people's attention. Imagine somebody stops you in the street and uh, tells you that they have a dream that they want to tell you that they had a dream. They got to tell you this dream. 
and they tell you their dream. And let's say you're so generous and so humane that you decide to let them tell you. And you say, okay, tell me the dream. And they say, okay, I'll tell you, but before I do, I need two things. One, I need you to understand this is going to take 100 minutes. We need an hour and 40 minutes, for, you know, just stand here for an hour and 40 minutes while I tell you my dream. Uh, and also give me $15 or whatever it costs, you know, uh, yeah. today for a, a ticket to go to the movie theater. It's crazy. It's just crazy. And I think writers have to uh, embrace that, realize how nutty it is to, and, and what, a, what a, a blessing it is uh, to be able to, to um, uh, make a living telling people, you know, literally trafficking in, in our own imagination, literally swapping our daydreams for dollars. Um, what could be more, you know, more wonderful than that? Yeah. And it's worth struggling and it's worth suffering and it's worth experiencing pain battling to to do that if that's what you really uh, want to do and if you're good at that wow um sir thank you uh, my pleasure for so much of your time um this was i want what do you or is there anything you're working on right now is anything your website I'm sorry um your website will be on yeah uh, richardwalter.com perfect what there's no you? s at the end of my name it's just richard walter Com, and that will let you communicate with Kathy Berardi, uh, who puts in touch with me. By the way, my, my email address is Professor Richard Walter, one long word, <laughs> at uh, gmail.com. Um, but you can always reach me uh, also through Kathy, richardwalter.com. I do have, uh, I certainly would, would uh, I don't think you, you, you'd be in really bad shape if you read my book, Essentials of Screenwriting, widely available. Uh, and I also would, would uh, say that I have a uh, uh, webinar that I've been doing now for, since I've retired from UCLA. Um, it runs, uh, it's limited enrollment. Uh, it's 90 minutes and it's an hour and a half a week for six weeks. Very interactive. We, we, I do some lecturing, but we also look at participants' pages in detail. And when I'm reviewing somebody particular, let's say Michael's pages, it's obviously useful for Michael, but it's also useful for everybody around the E table, because whatever happens, you know, the issues that arise in any writer's pages arise in every writer's pages. Uh, so I've had great responses to this. I do need to, to uh, advise everybody that it, it, it sells out almost as soon as it's announced. It is limited enrollment. And if you are interested in, in joining me the next time I do it, and I don't have dates set yet, I just finished one last week. Um, the next one will start in another few months, I'm sure. But if you do uh, want to participate in that, I do recommend that you get a hold, you go to richardwalter.com and communicate with Kathy Berardi that you want to be put on a list of people who will be notified in advance uh, when we do actually have dates, so you have a chance to, uh, to get in. As I say, it does sell out quite quickly, and I do like to keep it uh, limited enrollment so that there can be interaction. It's, just, it's not just me just running my mouth. <laughs> well, I can I can vouch. Kathy is the best to talk to. Um, so. He's wonderful. Yeah, I'm lost without the Kathy Berardi. Yeah. <laughs> so she arranged this. So thank you very much for that. Thank Kathy. you for having me. You know where to reach me when you need me. Good luck, and uh, we'll stay in touch. Yes, for sure. Before I let you go, just hang out in the chat room for a second while I uh, close everything out here because I just want to sure. change some details with you. But uh, for all of us, if it's your first time, 
We make it simple. RealDebaters.ca. Just go there, check it out. That's where all of uh, Richard's information is going to be. So if you want to reach out to him and get his books and get his seminars, that's where it's going to be able to be found. We'll share it too on our page, Richard. So if you want, if you want to tell Kathy to send me an email, we'll throw up a link and be like, "Hey, listen, this guy knows his shit. Go listen to him talk." Because I'm, thank you. I'm so much better for it. So thank you for that as well too. Thank uh, you. You know, the funny thing is, is, is uh, over all my years, I have a feeling, and pe- it's resonant with people. I think that everything I'm saying is something people already sort of know uh, that they sort of needed to be reminded of. You know? Uh, yeah. It's not I, like I invented some magic. Formula there, you know. You know know what it is, Richard. It's nice to know somebody who has a skill and a talent to reaffirm that. I, I, we know it, but when it comes back to us from somebody with your tenure and skill, then you just feel like you're on the right path. So that's that's nice to that's nice to have. So don't discount that at all in any way. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Appreciate it. Awesome. We'll be in touch, sir. Ladies and gentlemen, I've been Michael Petro. Watch all the fucking movies, and we are gone.